Hey y'all, we're rerunning two episodes today. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Eves. Welcome to This Day in History class, a show that reveals a little bit more about history day by day. The day was March 27, 1915. A cook named Mary Mallon, also known as Typhoid Mary, was quarantined for the last time. Mary had been infecting people with Salmonella typhi, the bacterium that causes typhoid fever, for years. She had been quarantined once before and then released. But this time, Mary was quarantined for good on North Brother Island in New York City's East River. Mary Mallon was born in 1869 in Ireland and moved to the United States in 1883 or 1884. Just a few years before, scientists confirmed that salmonella caused typhoid fever, a disease spread through contaminated food and water that can be deadly if left untreated. People who have had the illness can become carriers of the bacteria and cause outbreaks. When Mary moved to the U.S., she became a domestic servant, usually taking cook jobs. In 1906, Mary took a summer job as a cook for New York banker Charles Henry Warren and his family in Oyster Bay, Long Island. But on August 27th, one of the daughters got typhoid fever. Then Warren's wife, two maids, the gardener, and another daughter caught typhoid. By September 3rd, six of the 11 people in the house had gotten sick with typhoid fever. At this time, typhoid fever was fatal in about 10% of cases. The Warrens were renting the home from George Thompson, who was scared that he wouldn't be able to rent the house again without finding out where the outbreak started. So after hiring investigators who couldn't track down the source, Thompson landed on George Soper, a New York City Department of Health sanitary engineer who specialized in typhoid fever epidemics. Soper first thought that freshwater clams were responsible for the outbreak. But soon, after realizing not everyone who had the illness had eaten the clams, he began to suspect Mary was the source. He researched Mary's employment history back to 1900, and he discovered that everywhere Mary popped up, so did typhoid outbreaks. From 1900 to 1907, 22 people exhibited signs of typhoid fever at seven places where Mary worked, including some people who died. While Soper was digging into Mary's past, she kept working in households around New York City as a cook. But Soper was convinced Mary was the issue. He tried to get samples of her feces, urine, and blood, but she was not willing to cooperate. Here's what Soper later said about one of his encounters with Mary. I had my first talk with Mary in the kitchen of this house. I was as diplomatic as possible, but I had to say I suspected her of making people sick and that I wanted specimens of her urine, feces, and blood. It did not take Mary long to react to this suggestion. She seized a carving fork and advanced in my direction. I passed rapidly down the long, narrow hall through the tall iron gate and so to the sidewalk. I felt rather lucky to escape. That's how well she reacted when Soper tried to get samples from her again. So the health department put Dr. Sarah Josephine Baker on the case, and Baker forcibly took Mary to the Willard Parker Hospital, 
where they found Salmonella typhi in her stool. Mary was the first asymptomatic carrier of typhoid to be identified. In 1907, about 3,000 people in New York had been infected with the bacterium, and Mary was pegged as being responsible for all those cases. At this time, there was no immunization or antibiotic treatment for Salmonella typhi. Since Mary wouldn't agree to have her gallbladder removed, which was a risky operation then, the health department sent her to live in isolation on North Brother Island. While she was quarantined, she was subjected to all sorts of testing, though nobody had explained to her what being a carrier of salmonella typhi meant. She didn't know how she could be spreading typhoid, yet never have had the disease, as she wasn't aware that a person could have typhoid fever, but not show its usual symptoms, like fever, headaches, and diarrhea. She felt persecuted and like a peep show for everybody, as she put it. So in 1909, she sued the health department, but to no avail. 1909 was also the year an article in New York American first dubbed her Typhoid Mary. She wasn't released from quarantine until February 19, 1910, under the condition that she never work as a cook again. But Mary went back to cooking when the pay from just working as a laundress wasn't cutting it. When a typhoid epidemic broke out at Sloan Maternity Hospital in Manhattan and a sanatorium in Newfoundland, New Jersey, Soper tracked down Mary, who had worked at both places. On March 27, 1915, the New York Sanitary Police found her in a home in Westchester County, New York, and sent her back to North Brother Island. She lived out the rest of her days there in quarantine, and she died in 1938, years after a stroke had paralyzed her. Estimates have directly linked her to more than 50 cases of typhoid fever, including three deaths. Mary Mallon became known as the woman who got a lot of other people sick with typhoid fever, but her story raises questions about how disease carriers have been treated in the U.S. healthcare system and how the line between civil liberties and public health should be drawn. By the time she died, hundreds of other healthy carriers had been identified, though none received the treatment and enduring stigma she did. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Keep up with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at T-D-I-H-C podcast. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey everyone, it's Eves and welcome to this day in history class. I am still at home, but I am still bringing you episodes. So I hope you enjoy. The day was March 27, 1964. A magnitude 9.2 earthquake hit Alaska, destroying buildings and triggering landslides and tsunamis. It was the second largest earthquake ever recorded after the 1960 Valdivia earthquake. The disaster is sometimes known as the Good Friday earthquake because it occurred on the holiday. At 5.36 p.m. local time, an earthquake struck Alaska in the area near Prince William Sound when a fault between the Pacific and North American plates ruptured. The epicenter was about 6 miles or 10 kilometers east of the mouth of College Fjord. 
the rupture started at a depth of about 16 miles or 25 kilometers. The quake lasted between four and five minutes. States as far away as Texas felt its effects. The aftershock zone of the earthquake extended from Prince William Sound to the southwestern part of Kodiak Island. Thousands of aftershocks occurred over the next year, with larger ones in the first day after the event and smaller ones in the following months. The earthquake devastated cities in the area. It caused damage in many towns, including Anchorage, Hope, Moose Pass, and Valdez. Property destruction was extensive in Anchorage, where most damage occurred. Homes and buildings were destroyed, roads split apart, water, sewer, and gas lines broke, telephone and electrical systems failed. Coastal forests were destroyed. Parts of the Alaskan coast sank several feet and other parts rose. Around 15 people died in the initial quakes. Even more people died in the waves generated by the tsunamis and landslides that followed. The biggest landslide happened in Anchorage at Turnagain Heights. Around 130 acres were affected by displacements caused by the landslide, and around 75 homes were destroyed. Some Alaska Native villages, like Chaniga, were wiped out. Chaniga and other places had to move to better ground. An estimated 131 people were killed in the disaster. That included people who lost their lives in places as distant as Oregon and California. Tsunamis caused damage along the northwestern coast of the United States. Though not as extensive, they also caused damage in Hawaii and Japan. The quake and tsunamis were estimated to cause at least $300 million worth of property damage along the Pacific coast. At magnitude 9.2, it was the most powerful earthquake ever recorded in U.S. history. That said, the death toll was much lower than the quake had potential for due to low population density in Alaska and the fact that it was a holiday evening. Disaster relief was organized for people who lost their homes. A day after the quake, U.S. President Lyndon Johnson declared Alaska a major disaster area. Eventually, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers spent around $110 million repairing infrastructure, rebuilding communities, and cleaning up. The West Coast and Alaska Tsunami Warning Center was created in the wake of the disaster. Anchorage's Earthquake Park stands as a commemoration of the 1964 disaster. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you want to send us a note on social media, you can do so on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at TDIHCpodcast. You can also send us a note via email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.